We welcome Dilipa Fonseca, Senior Correspondent with Business Desk. That's businessdesk.co.nz. Thanks very much for being with us, Dilipa. Good morning. Kia ora, Catherine. How are you going? Good, thanks. You've launched a Business of Education series today. Education very much in the spotlight at the moment. Uh, what are you coming at? at uh, which perspective are you coming at it from? Yeah, it's kind of um, uh, the timing is weirdly coincidental, uh, I can assure you, or... Maybe it wasn't. Maybe that's uh, government recent government actions that are prompted by all our inquiries over the past few months. But uh, basically, we um, have had like a couple of series um, looking into different sectors of the economy. You know, our last one was around um, health and waste. Uh, we've had another one around waste management, and um, we decided to basically do uh, you know a series looking at the education sector, uh, which we're calling the business of education. Because effectively, you know, the government budgets, you know, more than $20 billion for education. And uh, we just had questions around who's making money out of this because it's actually quite a big a part of the um, economy that we don't necessarily think about. You know, it's our 10th biggest industry, $15.5 billion for to GDP. Um, you know, there's 100,000 school staff on the payroll and 220,000 people work in the whole sector. And the Ministry of Education itself, um, which it, I guess has been the subject of some recent controversy, uh, manages the country's second largest social property portfolio, 16,000 school buildings, book value of $30.3 billion. Um, so it's all a very a large amount of money. And um, so we've done over the past few few months a few queries and um, official information act requests, but also talked to people around the sector um, to kind of figure out where the money is going, what it's being spent on, and perhaps get an idea of um, whether, you know, what kind of value the taxpayer and the, you know, person being educated is getting out of it. This um, is the compulsory sector, not the tertiary sector? Uh, well, it does include, it, it will include um, the uh, tertiary sector as well. So we okay. do we do look at like some of the kind of blowouts that are happening and some of the deficits. And we've already um, published, I think, some stories looking at, um, uh, because it was becoming a bit of a topic, looking at some of the deficits there as well. Um, but uh, the, uh, I mean, our first, what we've launched with today is basically a look at uh, the consulting contracts that the Ministry of Education um, has. So they have increased their spending on tier one consultants, um, which the government has classifications around these consultants. So your tier one consultants are sort of the KPMGs, the Beckers, the Deloitte's, um, those kind of typical names. Um, so they're the largest consultancies by value and capability. PwC uh, must be in there. Yeah, yeah, PwC as well. Um, and so the um, and so they uh, the spending on those has written uh, risen four four and a half fold um, since 2019, uh, which is quite significant. Although um, the you know that's basically risen from four million to 23 million, and that's only a portion of the amount of money being spent on consultants. Like our, our from our sort of uh, figures taken from the Public Service Commission, that total spend is about two hundred seventy-eight million dollars. Um, and so our um, so you know we basically looked at uh, why you know what is that money uh, being you know tried to look at what what is that money being spent on and. Part of it is around the maintenance of these sort of school buildings, which has been um, come out. But um, some of it is on curriculum. So uh, although we've bought, although there are the tier one consultants like uh, your KPMGs and your Deloitte's who we've highlighted, um, the Ministry of Education is also spending a lot of money on um, contracting out some of the things like uh, the for, for curriculum development, some of its, um, some of its other pure 
core education competencies. And uh, one of the um, academics that we spoke to in relation to this um, actually said, you know, the the big spend demonstrates that perhaps um, the ministry itself doesn't necessarily have these capabilities in-house. Um, and so it's spending the um, consultants, uh, spending this money on, I guess, consultancies uh, in these sort of areas. And um, some of that spend is perhaps inevitable. You know, some things like special needs education, you're going to have to bring in uh, specialist advice and perhaps it may not be worth the ministry's time to have that continually within the ministry. Um, Curriculum development was a four-year process, I think. But you, Yeah. You, yeah. Uh, the other one, of course, is IT. Did they talk much about IT systems need, needing upgrading? This was over the pandemic as well, but school laptops is probably about as flash as they got. Yeah, well, um, the, IT, the, the, thing with the, um, the thing with the numbers, and this is probably a broader, um, broader question, the, what we've gotten back, um, so there's what we've gone back around this contract to spend is actually a lot less transparency than what we've, what we received from our ministry of um, health. uh, I'll look into the the business of health Um, because effectively uh, with the business of health, we, we got back figures and a detailed, right. This is um, how much has been spent with each agency. This is what it was for. Um, What we've received back in relation to um, the ministry of education spending is, this is uh, this is the these are the amounts, um, but no more detail. Yeah, so we they've provided a list of a whole bunch of activities, um, but they haven't said you know who's getting paid for what. And the building stuff is a big one because as we've heard, um, it, it, to be fair, what is it thirty forty percent? What is it the figure we've landed on construction costs increasing since the start of the pandemic? Um, I, well, yeah, I mean, at least three, four, uh, at least thirty percent. At least um, let's, yeah, let's stay yeah. with thirty. Yeah. So, so that's understandable. There's there's a lot of buildings. There's three hundred and fifty now projects paused alone, just in the compulsory sector alone. I also know that the universities, some of them, are sitting on some pretty ugly situations with earthquake yeah. uh, vulnerabilities as well. So. Is there logic that a chunk of this is going to the likes of your Beckers or other firms who have a, um, a clear um, role? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this. I mean, th- that was a point that Becker made to us was um, effectively they are, you know, working on, um, you know, the management of properties uh, about two thousand five hundred schools, I think. So that kind of, um, you know, and they listed a whole bunch of engineering related activities, you know, like quantity quantity surveying and structural engineering and those kind of activities. So, um, yeah, the, no, none the spending on consultants is not necessarily scandalous um, on its own. I mean, they this this is a big property portfolio and it, you will the ministry itself may not have the capability to actually um, manage these buildings yeah. itself nor should it yeah you say that the guess the thing is i'm now looking at figures for the core uh, ministry of education full-time ftes and that says that between uh 2017 sorry i beg your pardon um over the period of 2017 to 2022 the number of full-time equivalents employed at the Education Ministry went up 55% yep. to 4,000. Now, again, that's pandemic year, so we want to be we want to be careful. But if if you've increased your core staff by 50% and you're increased, what, what's happened to your consultant spending? Again, if, it, if yeah. it can't be done in-house, then that's fine. You bring in consultants. What's going on in-house, particularly on stuff like curriculum? You know, this is the um, this is the uh, Core issue. So, um, 
how can the spending on both necessarily be raising? And also um, another element to bring in here in terms of the buildings is some of the buildings have been built using um, uh, the PPP framework. Um, so uh, they, you know, the maintenance is kind of have it handled by the um, private parties. Um, the, yeah, um, so this this staffing issue um, and uh, alongside the contractors, um, so clearly we know from sort of the data that um, effectively a lot of the contractor spend is on very small consultancies, um, which actually some of them may only have the Ministry of Health may be their sole client. Um, so that basically lends itself to the idea that um, the ministry is contracting out um, some you know key functions. Uh, and that's sort of been um, confirmed to us as well. This um, is Ministry of Education, did yeah, you Ministry mean? Of yeah, Ministry of Education. Because yeah, yeah. um, these must be, you know, if, if it's your only, if Ministry of Education is the biggest client, then probably um, you're not talking about maintenance of buildings and things like that um, because those kind of firms would have multiple clients. So something like 10 small consultancies are effectively relying almost entirely on ministry contracts. That's fine if they're bringing expertise, but you're left asking the question, what do 4,000 people do if they're not doing curriculum development and other kinds of education-specific work? Yeah, well, this is the th- um, uh, and And also, it's difficult on both ends, right? Because if the ministry isn't willing to provide a kind of breakdown of... Um, they're saying they can't provide a breakdown of the contractors and the what the contract who who these contractors are because effectively that identifies them um because there's you know there's only small uh small consultancies so um without without getting the identities of these um and then also um without getting much engagement from the ministry um how do we tell uh, exactly how this, you, you, you could yeah. say what those consultants are doing without identifying them surely yeah, and um, and uh, like uh, it feels that there's a lot more that you could do around um, being transparent around the consultant spend. Like you could attach, this, mm. you know. So what's next in the series? What else are you working on? So we are working on the um, uh, the infrastructure end of things. Um, you know, looking at ways in which um, the construction, uh, how is what is happening with school construction, um, what models have worked, what hasn't, um, and also. Um, you know, potential blowouts. We're also looking at school lunches, um, and uh, which have been kind of, I guess, a um, an issue of controversy. Um, we're looking at the state of the universities and other tertiary institutions' books, and um, we are, um, yeah, and we're hoping to, um, I guess, more broadly paint a picture of what is the actual private sector's role in the Mm. education system. Okay. Now, the World Trade Organization's 13th Ministerial, goodness, the WTO, it's one of those institutions that's feeling like in our changing world, you wonder, don't you? You wonder how much longer some of these 1980s, 1990s institutions um, are going to hold influence. Or in its case, you know, it's an arbiter in disputes. Uh, it's held a very significant, it's played a very significant role in, in, in terms of there being some kind of integrity and agreement on how trade will happen. But you you do wonder where things are heading. What's been happening at this thirteenth ministerial, Dilipa? 
Yeah, so um, Todd McClay, the Trade Minister, is um, there, and it's happening, you know, 26th to 29th of February, I think, although sometimes they extend it a bit longer. I don't know whether that'll happen this time. Um, so they're meeting in Abu Dhabi, uh, and they are uh, in the United Arab Emirates, and they're basically focusing on um, a few key issues. One is going to be around um, fishery, uh, like fisheries um, issues uh, and, and fisheries subsidies. Second, you know, another one on agricultural, uh, another issue is likely to be agricultural subsidies. Um, and there's then the um, sh- then a, the law, a kind of overhanging issue around um, digital tariffs, which is um, some countries want to bring in a tariff on uh, on digital ta- on digital or want the ability to bring in uh, tariffs on digital services, um, and probably bubbling away. Uh, that's in the background. That's going to be discussed is going to be. Um, the appointment of um, judges for the appellate panel on the WTO, um, which uh, the US actually blocked under Trump, and Biden has said that he's not going to um, uh, have any discussion on this until the end of 2024, which is um, coincidentally after the US uh, election. Um, so possibly, although that'll be discussed, I'm not sure how much progress they're going to get on that particular issue. Um, but the digital tariff one, uh, interestingly, New Zealand will actually play a key role in that because, um, Clay is actually going to be chairing that discussion. Um, so he's going to be, I guess, leading whatever agreement comes out of it. Where are we at? Are we, have we reached peak FTA? It was often seen as such a vital uh, economic uh, boost to, to get FTAs with um, nations going all the way back. CER was one of the first deals we did, didn't we, with Australia back in it was the Muldoon era. Yeah. But are we at the point now where it's going to be incremental gains, and especially with New Zealand obviously always pushing for more agricultural freedoms? Or will we see the migration of the FDA concept into the digital world, where obviously so much more commerce is going to be conducted going into the future? What what do you think? Yeah, though, so there's there's pretty good indications that we've, um, we're reaching peak FDA, and um, there's an interesting way that some define it. Um, so one, I guess, way of defining it is effectively from our own perspective as New Zealand. Um, uh, so when we talk when we talk FTAs, we won't be talking the kind of uh, trade agreements that we strike with um, other countries. Um, and so, you know, our, our cost of, uh, you know, negotiating sort of the future FTAs that are left might outweigh the gains um, that we get from them because the markets are kind of smaller. And two of the, the big ones that we really want, um, you know, the US and India, uh, are looking um, difficult to get. So the, um, but that's why we've always relied basically on the WTO process um, to help us uh, effectively reduce our negotiating costs. Because if we can come to an agreement at the WTO or in these multilateral forums, then we basically only have to negotiate in you know one um, forum. We don't have to invest in um, expensive missions to in negotiate agreements individually and uh, with individual countries. Uh, but the problem with the WTO's process is that um, it is now stalling, and you can see that I think from some of the agreement, some of the the issues that are on the agenda. Um, you know, agriculture, for example, is on, on the agenda, and there's a big there's a 
there's a big issue um, there with India, um, you know, blocking kind of further movement in it uh, because they want their anti anti hunger program permanently protected. Uh, while others say it, you know, violates regulations capping food subsidies. And um, India is sort of saying, you know, we are not going to move on these other issues unless an agreement's reached on the, um, you know, around protecting our um, food hunger program. Um, and so, I, I mean, some of these, although these are stances that countries are taking before they go into the ministerial, um, some of them may, you know, some of them may change inside depending on what compromises they can reach. But um, it's not necessarily... Um, it's not necessarily looking great. Um, the, like, in the... Um, and equally, uh, some of the um, other issues around um, but uh, the digital tariffs issue, for example, the um, on tariffs on digital services. So WTO needs some consensus to uh, basically extend this yeah. moratorium. Um, so the moratorium has actually been in place for most of the uh, time of the internet, I think since 1997. Um, and that basically means that um, countries have agreed not to put any tariffs on the trade of services through the internet. Now, India, Indonesia, and South Africa think that they're missing out on, on revenue um, through this. Uh, so they are pushing for countries to be able to level, levy digital tariffs. And um, and if, if the moratorium is not extended or if a more permanent solution isn't um, reached and the ability to uh, then effectively the w this will be maybe one of the first times uh uh perhaps you know at least in the recent history of the wo where kind of progress on free trade is going backwards because effectively you're you've come to an agreement uh to impose tariffs which were you know which haven't existed yeah um before okay uh, yeah. it's a it's a reversal of the trend just uh let's have a look at wellington's independent hearing panel uh, brave man to sort of wade <laughs> into the, the the wars going on here it did surprise didn't it just explain a little bit more about what it's been doing the decision it came out with and the uproar that's ensued Deliver. yeah so there are some interesting issues that uh, like i i think it's interesting to look we've looked at it uh, at business desk from the perspective of overall um, RMA reform, the issues that this was meant to prevent. So um, there was basically from central government, there was this consensus around um, housing. Effectively, councils need to be freeing up more land or upzoning the land, uh, which means, you know, allowing more uh, densification in certain areas. Um, So they either need to go up or out, and the councils haven't been doing enough of um, enabling either. Um, and so what they did was um, they enabled councils, they you know provide, produced a national policy statement on urban development with these sort of aims in place. The councils had to go through a big, long you know process of consultation, and they set you know various rules around character areas and where housing can go and and in this case in, in Wellington's case they've you know um, the council is probably uh, like uh, I think council pushed back on some of um, their officer recommendations and actually uh, allow for quite a lot of land for um, housing. And then, um, then so then these independent hearing panels were set up along the lines of um, what happened with the Auckland Unitary Plan. So the Auckland Unitary Plan, there was an independent hearing panel and they pushed back on some of the um, councillors not zoning enough land for housing. And perhaps the government's intention by setting up, or the previous government's intention by setting up this um, process in this way was that the independent hearing panels would, um, you know, com- would look at the objectives around more housing and would then uh, perhaps push back uh, even further against council plans. But in, in this case, it has kind of gone um, the opposite way. And um, 
some of the assumptions that have been, or some of the findings that the panel has had, um, striking, for example, um, the issue, issues were brought up around uh, does the increased supply of housing, whether that be densification or an oversupply of greenfield land, does that bring down the cost of um, uh, ho- housing? And um, the independent hearing panel uh, said no, it didn't have an effect um, if there was enough, because there was enough land zoned um, already. It wouldn't make any difference, in other words, to yeah. um, to, to ease up the restrictions. Uh, there's been a, a, a bit of a bit of uh, feedback afterwards, a bit of discussion afterwards. It seemed to be very reliant on the submission of one expert submitter. Yeah, so there was um, the, there was a submitter from the um, uh, character heritage, uh, like um, heritage and character associations, um, who's an economist who submitted. Uh, but the criticism um, is that uh, that person's views were relatively well known, and they were representing a particular um, you know, party. But there's a well, it leaves you wondering why those views were so heavily. Liber- this is the mystery. It's not that the submission went in. Yeah, but why there was so much reliance on it from the panel. What happens now, by the way, in the process, Dilipa? So uh, there's been an interesting announcement today um, where uh, Minister of Housing, Chris Bishop, has given a speech um, where he's outlined, um, uh, he's he's basically outlined that he is going to be the person at the end of this IHP process. So there was a bit of a debate about whether Penny Simmons, uh, Minister of the Environment, would be... um, would actually be receiving these uh, independent hearing panel reports or whether um, Bishop would be. And it seems um, Bishop has kind of positioned himself to um, receive them, which uh, I th- effectively it means that um, these, these this panel report will now be debated by the city council. So they will make their own changes to it um, or, or perhaps Yeah, not but interesting it. to see which minister is, yes, is, is lining exactly, themselves up actually, to. Normally have, it would have gone to uh, yeah. Simmons. Thank you. Dilipa Fonseca is Senior Correspondent with Business Desk. That's businessdesk.co.nz.